Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered how much of the world around us has been shaped by humans? And then how much of it remains untouched? Well, the answer might surprise you because no matter where you are, even in the most pristine places on Earth, they've been deeply influenced by our presence. So much so that some scientists say we're living in a new geological epoch, and it's called Anthropocene. And today's show is all about how we're changing our planet and what that might mean for the future. This episode originally aired in September of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. Did you know that the birthplace of dinosaur paleontology is actually in New Jersey? Mm-hmm. It is. Hmm. The world's first really substantial dinosaur skeleton was found in Haddonfield, New Jersey in 1858. And the world's first tyrannosaur was found about a mile from my quarry 150 years ago this week. This is Ken Lacavara. He's a paleontologist and dean of the School of Earth and Environment at Rowan University. Which runs a dinosaur quarry in New Jersey. Wonderful place. Yeah, the New Jersey Turnpike doesn't exactly scream birthplace of paleontology. It does not. Yeah, because you just go by like factories and yeah, you don't think about dinosaurs when you're there. I Uh, do. You do? (laughs) You do (laughs) when you're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike? Well, I do, because I, I know what geological formations I'm driving over. Okay, so just out of curiosity, driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, uh, mm-hmm. if you were like a dinosaur and you went back in time, what would that, what would that look like? Well, if, um, if you were back in the Cretaceous period, the last of the time of the dinosaurs, and you were driving from New York to Philadelphia on the New Jersey Turnpike, you would be driving across water. Um, for the most part. So the coastline would be a little bit to the west of there. And so the dinosaurs that we find in New Jersey are what we call the bloat and float dinosaurs. So these are dinosaurs that died on the beach, ended up in the water, probably initially sank when they get a lung full of water, and then the body starts to decay. Hmm. And as those decay gases build up in the body, the carcass floats. They become like this big, giant, bobbing meat buoy at sea. Hmm. And as the body decays, then pieces of the skeleton start to drop out of the carcass and settle to the seafloor. And that's what we find in the Cretaceous deposits of New Jersey. And those Cretaceous deposits mark a geological era. And eras are how geologists measure time. And they're usually created by these big, world-changing events. And so when the dinosaurs go extinct and 75% of life goes extinct after a meteor hits the planet, That's an era boundary. That's when we change from the Mesozoic to the Cenozoic. So think of an era kind of like an hour on the clock, right? It's a lot of time, tens of millions of years. And like an hour, it's made up of smaller increments. But instead of minutes and seconds, they're known as periods and epochs. Uh, In our case, we are in the Cenozoic era, which started at the end of the time of the dinosaurs. We are in the Quaternary period, which is within the Cenozoic era. And within the Quaternary, we are in the Holocene epoch. The Holocene epoch, basically defined by the development of our human civilization. But in geological time, the Holocene is tiny, only the last 11,700 years, or basically since the end of the last ice age. It's roughly correlated with that. The technical definition of the Holocene has to do with the extinction of a snail species in Sicily. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Just one they, snail they have species? To find a, yeah, they have to find a marker. <laughs> wow. So other geologists can say, well, there it is. There's the snail. There's not the snail. That's when we set the boundary. Humans, here's wow. your age. A snail died in Italy. Right. Wow. Yeah. But here's the thing. A lot has changed since that snail died in Italy. We humans have made our presence felt on the planet more than any other species in Earth's history. And what that means for our future... 
isn't yet clear. And so it, w- it was Winston Churchill who said, the further back you look, the further ahead you can see. And so if we want to know how the Earth's biosphere is going to respond to the things that humans are doing to the planet right now, the only evidence that we have is, is how biotic systems have responded in the past. And based on the past several million years, we know the Earth goes through natural cycles of cooling. In fact, 20,000 years ago, most of North America was covered in a giant ice sheet. Might have been a mile or more high at the North Pole that extended all the way down to East Brunswick, New Jersey, or the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, or deep down into Illinois in the Midwest. Just south of that, where southern New Jersey is, that was tundra. And based on that past, we know that the Earth, it should be getting cooler right about now. But it's not. It's getting warmer. And the divergence between where we know we ought to be and where we're going, we can attribute that to the human influence that we're having on the climate. And for that reason, some scientists have proposed thinking about our place in geological history differently. That the world today is a lot different than it was when that snail died in Italy and that we need a new term for a new epoch, the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene essentially would be the time of human influence on the planet. Um, That's controversial, though, because geology is a retrospective discipline. The the rocks of the Anthropocene haven't been deposited yet, really. But at the same time, I think it's a really useful tool in the same way that we would discuss the, the Iron Age or the Bronze Age. Certainly, we have entered into a new age on our planet. We're changing things, in many cases, in irreparable ways. And that will certainly be recorded in the geological record. There's no doubt if you could go 5, 10, 15 million years into the future and dig down to... 2016, you would be able to find the geological evidence that humans occupied the planet. So today on the show, the Anthropocene. Ideas about a new human age, an age that's changing our planet in unprecedented ways, and what that might mean for our future. Ken Lacavara returns later with the story of one dinosaur that reveals a lot about where we're headed. But first, How should we relate to the idea of the Anthropocene right now? Can we just can we just clarify this? Is it Anthropocene or Anthropocene or Anthropocene or Anthropocene? I've heard that it's a U.S. U.K. difference. This is Emma Maris. She's a writer and she's covered nature and the environment for years. What do you say? I guess I say Anthropocene now. You do? Yeah. I've been saying an- an- Anthropocene in my interviews. Am I going to sound like a pompous jerk? Uh, you know what? It's possible that either version makes us sound like pompous jerks. Okay. <laughs> All right. However you say it, Emma believes the world is full of signs that we're living in the Anthropocene. No matter where you are, no matter what you're looking at, no matter how many days you spent hiking away from the road, you're still in a landscape that was shaped by humans because of climate change. Every place on Earth has more carbon dioxide in it than it used to. The sort of influence of humans is everywhere. Even in places we think of as untouched, Emma picks up the idea from the TED stage. Places like Yellowstone or the Mongolian steppe or the Great Barrier Reef or the Serengeti, places that we think of as kind of Edenic representations of a nature before we screwed everything up. And in a way, they are less impacted by our day-to-day activities. Many of these places have no roads or few roads. But ultimately, even these Edens are deeply influenced by humans. Now, let's just take North America, for example, since that's where we're meeting. Crater Lake in southern Oregon, which is my closest national park, is a beautiful example of a landscape that seems to be coming out of the past. But they're managing it carefully. One of the issues they have now is whitebark pine die-off. Whitebark pine is a beautiful megaflora that grows up at high altitude, and it's got all these problems right now with disease. There's a blister rust that was introduced, bark beetle. So to deal with this, the Park Service has been planting rust-resistant whitebark pine seedlings in the park. And this kind of thing is really much more common than you would think. National parks are heavily managed 
the wildlife is kept to a certain population size and structure, fires are suppressed, fires are started, non-native species are removed, native species are reintroduced. It takes a lot of work to make these places look untouched. Additionally, these sort of Edenic places are often distant from where people live, and they're expensive to get to, they're hard to visit. So this means that they're only available to the elites, and that's a real problem. And in a further irony, these places that we love the most are the places that we love a little too hard sometimes. A lot of us like to go there, and because we're managing them to be stable in the face of a changing planet, they often are becoming more fragile over time. And because nature is changing, Emma Mara says we need to start to rethink how we define what nature is. This is a cute buggy, too. And that starts when we're kids. So I've got two kids, six and four. Uh, do you guys uh, spend a lot of time in, in nature? Yes. How many have you gotten? There's a lot of bug um, observation that happens. The kids love to look for grasshoppers. Whoa, how many grasshoppers is that? I don't know. Dragonflies and roly-polies. And the cool thing about roly-polies is that when you touch them, they roll up into a little ball. I got baby roly-polies. But we don't tend to make very much ground. We don't tend to really rack up the miles. Just kind of exploring what's around? Right, right. It's going away. So those those were your actual kids that we were just uh, hearing there. Where do you guys uh, where do you guys do this kind of thing? Well, some of the places my kids love the most are empty lots, and little unmown strips by the sides of a commercial building or just along the side of the road. Wait, all this is happening in in like empty lots? Yeah, they love them. So you raise your kids to think about nature in a totally different way. Yes, I do, because. We keep making all these rules for what should count as nature. You know, it's got to be pristine, or it's got to um, be wild, or it's got to have only native plants and animals in it. And they're not—they're they're not coming up with these these kind of exclusionary categories. They're seeing nature every day as soon as they walk out the door because they're down there looking at the ants and the leaves and the street trees um, and the bird—you know, the robins and the pigeons—and we stop seeing these small bits of nature as nature, partially just out of familiarity and partly because we have these grand categories in mind, but but they don't make those distinctions necessarily. Yeah, I mean, to them, it's just like bugs and plants. Right. And, you know, they come into this world with a very open, huge, inclusive definition of nature. And what I worry about is that we then train them to not see a lot of that nature. We then sort of talk them out of enjoying a lot of the nature that's available to them on a daily basis. But at the rate that the climate is changing and the rate that species are moving around, a lot of Earth is going to be changed. Then in another generation, there won't really necessarily be that many of those places left. Emma Maris is back in just a minute with more ideas about rethinking nature in the age of humans, the Anthropocene. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. Smart News, a free mobile app that provides you with perspectives from CNN, BBC News, Reuters, and more than 300 other trusted sources. Smart News already helps over 30 million people discover the news that matters and has won awards from Apple and Google. Download the app for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. You got one week to fix a country's failing preschools. Go. On Rough Translation, a bold experiment by a country to transform its culture of teaching. And it works. Until the very people that most want these schools to succeed start getting in the way. Rough Translation, wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the Anthropocene, this new age of unprecedented human influence on the planet. 
And we're just hearing from environmental writer Emma Maris, whose idea is that since the natural world is changing, we have to change how we perceive it. I remember I was in Hawaii once and I was in a car with a bunch of ecologists and we were driving down this jungle and it was beautiful. It was, you know, flowers cascading down waterfalls, huge leaves dripping with water. Wow. And there was a sign that said it was a scenic byway. And all the ecologists in the car just laughed and hooted because none of those plants were from Hawaii. And so in their eyes, it was hideous. Hmm. They had trained themselves to only see ugliness when it wasn't pristine. You know, that's a real shame. <laughs> yeah. So what are we going to do with this, this Anthropocene nature that surrounds us? Are we going to be able to see the beauty in it? Are we going to be able to value it, even though our fingerprints are on it? Here's Emma again from the TED stage. I think that nature is anywhere where life thrives, anywhere where there are multiple species together, anywhere that's green and blue and thriving and filled with life and growing. And under that definition, things look a little bit different. All of a sudden, we see this monarch caterpillar you know, munching on this plant, and we realize that there it is, and it's in this empty lot in Chattanooga. I mean, there's like probably a dozen minimum plant species growing there, supporting all kinds of insect life. This is a, a kind of a wild nature right under our nose that we don't even notice. Here's an example, Philadelphia. There's this cool, elevated railway that you can see from the ground that's been abandoned. Now, this may sound like the beginning of the High Line story in Manhattan, and it's very similar, except they haven't developed this into a park yet, although they're working on it. So for now, it's still this little sort of secret wilderness in the heart of Philadelphia. And if you know where the hole is in the chain-link fence, you can scramble up to the top, and you can find this completely wild meadow just floating above the city of Philadelphia. Every single one of these plants grew from a seed that planted itself there. This is completely autonomous, self-willed nature. And there are over 50 plant species up there. And it's not just plants. This is an ecosystem, a functioning ecosystem. It's creating soil, it's sequestering carbon, there's pollination going on. I mean, this is really an ecosystem. So scientists have started calling ecosystems like these novel ecosystems, because they're often dominated by non-native species and because they're just super weird. They're just unlike anything we've ever seen before. For so long, we dismissed all these novel ecosystems as trash. We're talking about regrown agricultural fields, timber plantations that are not being managed on a day-to-day -day basis, second growth forests generally, the entire East Coast, where after agriculture moved west, the forests sprung up. And of course, pretty much all of Hawaii, where novel ecosystems are the norm, where exotic species totally dominate. You can make your own novel ecosystem, too. It's really simple. You just stop mowing your lawn. <laughs> all right, so, I mean, even if we all stop mowing our lawns, right? I mean, there, there's still a lot of actual nature out there being destroyed. So how do we, how do we keep some of that? The thing is, is that as the planet changes, it's going to be more and more expensive and time-consuming to keep ecosystems from changing. But I do think it's worth doing in small areas. So there's a guy named Greg Applett. He's a really smart guy, and he's come up with this sort of landscape-level solution for how we do conservation, which I think is brilliant. And basically, the way you do it is you divide up your landscape into three chunks, and one chunk you classically restore. You, you keep that place looking the way it did at whatever sort of time period you have data about the sort of pre-development state. Hmm. Then the second chunk, you do innovative approaches in. You, you bring things in that you think might do better under the new climate. You try stuff out because we're going to need more innovative approaches in a changing world. And then the third chunk, you do nothing. You just watch as nature itself adapts to all of these new challenges and changes, and you take note of what becomes the new resilient, tough ecosystem that emerges. Yeah. And we're not really sure yet which of these strategies will be most effective in doing things like preventing extinctions. So trying all three, I think, is a great idea. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of like hedging our bets because we don't really know uh, what nature is going to be like for future generations. Right, right, because... We're not sure what our great-grandchildren are really going to value. You know, are they going to mostly be concerned that we kept species from going extinct? 
Are they going to be really upset if we manage everything and there's nothing that's really wild? What are they going to value? We don't know. Nature is going to survive in some shape or form, and it's probably going to be more fantastic than we think. Um, So by restoring some things in the way we always have, letting some things go wild, and trying experiments in other places, we can ensure that we're going to at least do something right. Emma Maris is the author of Rambunctious Garden. You can see her entire TED Talk at TED.com. Okay, so it may still be possible to appreciate nature in the future, even as we continue to change what nature is. But we also can't deny that change. It's massive. And in geological time, massive change usually means one thing, extinction. Geological time is really a history of gravestones. This is paleontologist. Hello, hello, Peter Ward here. Peter Ward. I am a professor of biology and a professor of earth and space sciences at the University of Washington. And Peter says the age of humans, the Anthropocene, will not just be about how we change the planet. It'll be about what disappears from the planet. If you name a new period, it's probably because a lot of stuff died out in the period before. And lo and behold, that certainly has happened. In fact, Peter says most of the species that ever lived on planet Earth have disappeared. Oh, yes. In five mass extinctions. Each of these big mass extinctions has at least half of the species going extinct and probably way more than that. You probably know about my personal favorite 65 million years ago when something really big... Exactly. A big comet or a big asteroid... ...slammed into Earth. Bang. Bang. (laughs) Right near the Gulf of Mexico. And that one asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs and pretty much everything else. Yep. And we know of at least one other mass extinction caused by something similar, a giant comet or asteroid. But the other three? Those were caused by big changes in the climate. The first of these is the Ordovician period. Somewhere 450 million years ago, that particular mass extinction happened. And and what what happened? It just like things just started dying? Well, this is the most peculiar and relatively unknown of the five big mass extinctions known from the time of animals. Um, Lots of things started dying, and the things that died mostly were coral reef-type animals, including lots and lots of corals. It's very mysterious, but you had a pretty much reliably tropical world from pole to pole, and all of a sudden, we seem to have gone into a short period of global cooling. And just as if we were to take um, the beautiful Indo-Pacific coral reefs, the Great Barrier Reef, and stick icebergs around it for a few millennia, I I guarantee the Great Barrier Reef would be really dead. So uh, lots of things die, and most of it's sea life in the Ordovician period. And then, uh, I guess about 100 million years later, the uh, another mass extinction. Yes, and the second one is called the Devonian mass extinction. And this is one that wasn't caused by it getting colder. This one really appears to have been caused by it suddenly got really, really hot. And presumably this was also a problem for the oceans, right? Well, heat is a very good killer. And the the trouble with when you heat an ocean, you lose the ability of the upper surface waters to continue to oxygenate the deep waters. And once you stop letting the deep ocean bottoms have oxygen upon them, it kills all the animals. But there was one mass extinction that completely dwarfed the others. This was dubbed the mother of all mass extinctions. The Permian extinction. The Permian 251 million years ago. And we had the largest extensive upwelling and extrusion of lava that the world has ever seen. Now, for reasons that still aren't totally clear, the Earth suddenly got a lot more volcanic. And lava flows spread all across the Earth, giving off massive amounts of CO2. These things cover the landscape, but what made the Permian an especial killer is that all of these nasty volcanic layers moved into coal-bearing strata and began burning the coal subterranean, and that produced even more carbon dioxide. And so we had this really fast, 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 fast heat spike. Must have been unpleasant. Yep. This was known as a runaway greenhouse effect. 
More CO2 in the atmosphere kept things hotter, kept the lava flowing, which burned more coal, which released more CO2 into the atmosphere, which made things hotter. You get the idea, right? And Peter Ward says that should sound very familiar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's the difference between a volcano and a Volvo in terms of the gas that comes out of it? I shouldn't say that. I love my Volvo. <laughs> yeah. I'm a college professor. Come on, what do you think I'm going to drive? So what we're doing is we're starting again one of these what we call greenhouse extinctions that are caused largely by carbon dioxide and heating. So we are absolutely creating a case where we are killing off species. Peter Ward explains more from the TED stage. We can really now predict what's going to happen to our particular planet. We are right now in the beautiful Oreo of existence, of at least life on planet Earth. In the Cambrian explosion, life emerged from the swamps, complexity arose, and from what we can tell, we're halfway through. So our planet, like us, is going to have an age and an old age, and we are in its golden summer age right now. The Earth has never had any ice on it when we've had a thousand parts per million CO2. We are at 380 in climbing. We should be up to 1,000 in three centuries at the most, but my friend David Battisti in Seattle says he thinks 100 years. So there goes the ice caps, and there comes 240 feet of sea level rise. I live in a view house now. I'm going to have waterfront. Along with sea level rise, what else is going to happen? Well, you can take the optimistic view or, or what I think is the realistic view. I think realistically we are not going to stop uh, fossil fuels being burned and that we're going to continue to cause carbon dioxide to go up and we're going to continue to cause sea level to go up. And so that means moving into new areas that perhaps at the moment haven't been formed, and that means deforestation. So once you do deforestation, then you're taking out a great number of endemic species that we don't see in the fossil record. The insects, for instance. The really creatures that, that have no latitude in what they eat and where they live and the temperatures, these are the ones that go out. Darwin used the analogy of the wedge, that if there's a new species that has to wedge something out, well, we're not just wedging, we're splitting the log in half. And in this particular case, we are we're certainly dooming a huge number of species from habitat destruction. Okay, if that's not enough, there is one final thing we haven't mentioned that could mean even more trouble for the Anthropocene. The final aspect of the mass extinction here, and the one that should be scariest to us, is that people are really watching what's going on in the oceans. We are seeing increasingly um, low oxygen areas covering parts of the oceans because we're changing the velocity and the nature of the currents that take oxygen from the surface to the deep. You might remember that happens when the ocean gets warmer and it causes animals to die. But something else happens too. Four of the five mass extinctions were not just accompanied by uh, volcanic gases in the atmosphere. There was also the formation of toxins coming out of bacteria. And one of the worst of these is hydrogen sulfide, which is very, very poisonous. And that is what people are most worried about. Hydrogen sulfide is very fatal to we humans. As small as 200 parts per million will kill you. You only have to go to the Black Sea and a few other places, some lakes, and get down, and you'll find that the water itself turns purple. It turns purple from the presence of numerous microbes which have to have sunlight and have to have hydrogen sulfide. And the worst effect of global warming, it turns out, hydrogen sulfide being produced out of the oceans. We can easily go back to the hydrogen sulfide world. Give us a few millennia, and we humans should last those few millennia, Will it happen again? If we continue, it'll happen again. We have a huge problem facing us as a species. We have to beat this. So how are humans different from, you know, all these other species that have gone extinct in the past? Oh, humans, come on, we've, we have the golden ticket. We're able to put a coat on if it gets cold, and we're able to build air conditioners if it's too hot. So I think we are essentially extinction-proof. 
And I fight this concept that we are endangered. I think we are the least endangered species on the planet in hmm. many respects, simply because we have not just the experience, but the intelligence to deal with so many of these challenges. And I just think we are going to be the long-term survivals. Hmm. Now, happiness might be something else. Yeah. I mean, what kind <laughs> it, of planet it, will we survive on, right? Well, there's that. I mean, you certainly see all the post-apocalyptic thrillers and, and the depressing sort of looks into the future. But it really doesn't need to be that way. I think we're just going to see an increasingly manicured planet, an increasingly ordered planet where uh, the wild becomes not wild at all. It's managed wild. Human civilization, there's no reason that we just can't continue for millions of years into the present with just a modicum of civilization and technology. You can get around this stuff through intelligence. Paleontologist Peter Ward. Watch his entire talk at ted.npr.org. Today on the show, the Anthropocene. Ideas about the age we're living in and where it fits into the geological timeline. And with that in mind, here are three simple steps to finding dinosaurs. Well, um, you know, paleontologists, we all use the same formula. This is Ken Lecavara, the paleontologist we heard earlier in the show. The first thing is you have to find rocks of the right age. And since Ken studies dinosaurs of the Cretaceous period... I'm usually looking for rocks that are, you know, 65, 75 million years old. Second... They have to be the right kind of rock. Those rocks have to be sedimentary rocks. You can only make a fossil on a sedimentary rock. You can't have a fossil on a rock that was formed by magma or lava. And third, get yourself to a place where those rocks are right on the ground below your feet. So you need to get yourself in a desert, usually, um, where there aren't too many plants covering up the rocks, but where there's just enough rain to cause erosion that exposes new bones. And you find those three things, rocks of the right age that are sedimentary rocks and that are in a desert. And you get yourself on the ground and you just walk. And you walk until you literally see a dinosaur bone sticking out of the rock. Wow. So I'm thinking you're going to say, oh, we have this killer app and this laser technology and we've got all this radar equipment and we go out there with our substation. You're just walking around looking for a bone sticking out. Yeah, well, that would take all the fun out of it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's exactly what Ken was doing back in 2005. He was walking through the desert in Patagonia in Argentina. And I saw a, a portion of the thigh bone sticking out of the ground. The bone was massive. Two meters long, so, you know, over six feet long. And Ken immediately knew two things. One... This came from a giant dinosaur. And I knew that, an, that another giant dinosaur hadn't been found in South America within about 35 million years of geological time. And species don't last for that long. So I knew it had to be a new species. I didn't oh. know much about it at that point, but I knew it was a new species of really, really giant dinosaur. And that dinosaur had a story to tell, a story about the age in which it lived and how far we've come. Ken Lacavara picks up the story in just a minute with more ideas about our human age. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. Simply Safe. Home security done right. The New York Times wire cutter calls Simply Safe the best home security. Simply Safe is thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice it. There are no contracts, and CNET, the wire cutter, and PC Mag all named it their top pick for home security. Over 2 million people use it every day. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you today. Go to simplysafe.com/slash radio hour. Hey, before we get back to the show, I want to share some news that's connected to another show I host, How I Built This. We're hosting our first ever How I Built This One Day Summit, sponsored by American Express. You'll have a chance to hear from and interact with some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs and founders, like Airbnb's Joe Gebbia, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, John Zimmer of Lyft, and many, many more. We'll have breakout sessions with experts and guides, and the summit will be a chance for you to meet other innovators and builders. The How I Built This Summit will take place on October 16th at San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. You can go to npr.org summit to find out more and to get your tickets. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the Anthropocene, a geological epoch defined by human influence on the planet. And we were just hearing the story of a massive dinosaur leg bone that was unearthed by paleontologist Ken Lacavara in South America about 15 years ago. And he knew at the time that he discovered a new species, a species with a story to tell about the vast scope of geological time. Ken picks up the story from the TED stage. Now, unfortunately, that bone was isolated. We dug and dug and dug, and there wasn't another bone around. But it made us hungry to go back the next year for more. And on the first day of that next field season, I found another two-meter femur. Only this time, not isolated. This time, associated with 145 other bones of a giant plant eater. And after three more hard, really brutal field seasons, the giant that lay in this grave, the new species of dinosaur, we would eventually call Dreadnoughtus shrani. Dreadnoughtus was 85 feet from snout to tail. It stood two and a half stories at the shoulder. And all fleshed out in life, it weighed 65 tons. People ask me sometimes, was Dreadnoughtus bigger than a T-Rex? That's the mass of eight or nine T-Rex. Now, after this particular Dreadnoughtus carcass was buried, and defleshed by a multitude of bacteria, worms, and insects. Its bones underwent a brief metamorphosis, exchanging molecules with the groundwater and becoming more and more like the entombing rock. Meanwhile, Earth history unfolded above. The dinosaurs would reign for another 12 million years before their hegemony was snuffed out in a fiery apocalypse. The continents drifted, the mammals rose, the Ice Age came, and then in East Africa, an unpromising species of ape evolved the odd trick of sentient thought. And in a remarkable diaspora, surpassing even the dinosaurs' record of territorial conquest, they dispersed across the planet, ravishing every ecosystem they encountered. And along the way, inventing culture and metalworking and painting and dance and music and science and rocket ships that would eventually take 12 particularly excellent apes to the surface of the moon. With 7 billion peripatetic homo sapiens on the planet, it was perhaps inevitable that one of them would eventually trod on the grave of the magnificent titan buried beneath the badlands of southern Patagonia. I was that ape. And standing there, alone in the desert, it was not lost on me that the chance of any one individual entering the fossil record is vanishingly small. But the Earth is very, very old. And over vast tracts of time, the improbable becomes the probable. That's the magic of the geological record. That day when you found the first giant thigh bone, and then everything that it led to, I mean, that must have been like the most exciting discovery of your career. It was. It was. Uh, it's a day you won't forget. And you know what, what I love about paleontology, and this doesn't just have to do with when you find a giant dinosaur, but when you find anything, you, you pick this thing out of the ground that hasn't seen sunlight in, you know, in this case, in 77 million years, and you realize that you're the first human to ever see this. And then if you find a new species, which I've been lucky enough to, you know, have that experience a few times, um, you realize that you're the first human to ever know this which kind of makes you wonder. I mean, 65 million years from now, what are paleontologists going to make of our human age today? I mean, what will they think of us? What will remain a mystery to them? What we will look like in the future record is a marker bed. A marker bed is, is uh, an event that geologically was essentially instantaneous. Um, like when that meteor hit at the end of the age of dinosaurs. That's not an age. That's just a single event. Geologically, that is all we are, a moment. Or to put it another way? This is a trick that I uh, adapted from Carl Sagan. That, um, Astronomer Carl Sagan used to say that you could you take, take all, all of Earth's history. The four and a half billion years of Earth history and condense that into a single calendar year with Earth beginning on January 1st. Dinosaurs show up in the second week of December and they go extinct on Christmas Eve. Huh. Um, our hominid ancestors, they show up on December 31st at about 3.30 in the, in the afternoon. 
Wow. And then humans, our species, Homo sapiens, they show up on December 31st at 11.59.59 p.m., you know, and so corks are popping, the balls dropping, people are kissing, and that's when we show up. And, you know, everybody you've ever heard of, everybody you've ever known, every war, every invention has happened on that little tiny piece of dust that occurred at 11.59.59 on December 31st. Um, So our place in time is really, really small. The bones of Dreadnoughtus lay underground for 77 million years. Who could have imagined that a single species of shrew-like mammal living in the cracks of the dinosaur world would evolve into sentient beings capable of characterizing and understanding the very dinosaurs they must have dreaded? Why study the ancient past? Because it gives us perspective and humility. The dinosaurs died in the world's fifth mass extinction snuffed out in a cosmic accident through no fault of their own. They didn't see it coming, and they didn't have a choice. We, on the other hand, do have a choice. And the nature of the fossil record tells us that our place on this planet is both precarious and potentially fleeting. Right now, our species is propagating an environmental disaster of geological proportions that is so broad and so severe, it can rightly be called the sixth extinction. Only unlike the dinosaurs, we can see it coming. And unlike the dinosaurs, we can do something about it. That choice is ours. Thank you. You know, when we talk about uh, geological epochs and, and periods that lasted for millions of years, the idea of the Anthropocene just as, as like one of them, it's, it's strange to think about it, right? Because you you go to like a natural history museum and, and, and you see these species that were just blips in their own epochs. And it's kind of amazing to think about us that way. Well, humans are unprecedented. Um, there has never been a species that has been able to um, affect the planet so broadly and so deeply as humans have. But again, you know, whether we, you know, in a, in a future museum of natural history, would that be an epic or would that be, you know, one strange, strange moment in geological past? Paleontologist Kenneth Lacavara, his entire talk with some amazing visuals of the Dreadnoughtus is at TED.com. Today on the show, Anthropocene, Ideas about the age of humans and the impact we're having on our planet and our future. And that future may depend on a single building 800 miles from the North Pole, a building entirely closed to the public and empty most of the time. Yeah, well, there have been... um... There have been a lot of stories on the Internet, if you believe everything you see on the Internet, about what's really, really going on there. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Carrie Fowler is the executive director of a group that built and runs this building, which is nestled into a snowy cliffside on a polar island owned by Norway. Around that uh, particular building is almost nothing. In fact, you can't even see most of the building itself. It's underground. But what you can see is this gray concrete wedge just jutting out of the ice. It's very simple, austere, modern-looking wedge with a door on the front of it. Uh, so, so what's inside? Well, once you open the door, you're, you're looking down a very long tunnel, just chiseled out of solid rock, and uh, you go through a set of airlock doors at the end of the tunnel, and then you get hit with a blast of cold air in your face, and what you're looking at are row after row of shelves. It's a, it's a room, by the way, that's um, about 90 feet long and about 30 feet wide and about 15 feet high. It's white. It's um, spray-on concrete that we put in there to sort of brighten it up. And you're looking at shelves, and on the shelves are boxes. And, uh, and, and, and what's inside the boxes? What's inside is the largest collection of seeds in the world. Seeds? from 850,000 crop varieties, to be exact. Which makes about 500 million seeds. 
Carrie Fowler explained why there is a building full of frozen seeds on an island off Norway and what it has to do with the age of humans from the TED stage. I've been fascinated with, with crop diversity for about 35 years from now, ever since I stumbled across a fairly obscure academic article by a guy named Jack Harlan. And he described the diversity within crops, all the different kinds of wheat and rice and such, as a genetic resource. And he said, this genetic resource, and, and I'll never forget the words, stands between us and catastrophic starvation on a scale we cannot imagine. What he understood was that biological diversity, crop diversity, is the biological foundation of agriculture. It's the raw material, the stuff of evolution in our agricultural crops, not a trivial matter. And he also understood that indeed a mass extinction was underway in our, in our fields, in our agricultural system. And that this mass extinction was taking place with very few people noticing and even fewer caring. And I want to give you an example of that. In the United States in the 1800s, that's where we have the best data, farmers and gardeners were growing 7,100 named varieties of apples. Imagine that, 7,100 apples with names. Today, 6,800 of those are extinct, no longer to be seen again. Kerry Fowler says we don't just lose diversity when crops disappear. We actually lose adaptability because many of the crops we eat today, they exist because they were bred with other crops. And in some cases, crops thought to be completely useless to humans, but that contained a key characteristic like immunity to a disease. But the biggest threat to the future of agriculture isn't disease. It's the Anthropocene, our human influence on the planet. And Kerry says in the future, in some countries, even the coldest growing seasons are going to be hotter than anything crops have ever experienced in the past. Is agriculture adapted to that? I don't know. Can fish play the piano? If, they haven't, if agriculture hasn't experienced that, how could it be adapted? South Africa, by 2030, will have a 30% decrease in production of maize because of the climate change already in 2030. 30% decrease of production in the context of increasing population. That's a food crisis. It's global in nature. We will watch children starve to death on TV. Now, you may say that 30, 20 years is a long way off. It's two breeding cycles for maize. We have two rolls of the dice to get this right. We have to get climate-ready crops in the field, and we have to do that rather quickly. Now, the good news is that we have conserved, we have collected and conserved a great deal of biological diversity, agricultural diversity, mostly in the form of seed. And we put it in seed banks, which is a fancy way of saying a freezer. Um, unfortunately, these seed banks are located around the world in buildings and they're vulnerable. And disasters have happened. In recent years, we lost the gene bank, the seed bank in Iraq and Afghanistan. You can guess why. And every time something like this happens, it means extinction. And so to prevent this from happening, Carrie Fowler and a bunch of scientists got together to establish a global seed vault, a vault dedicated to preserving as many crops as possible from around the world. And they chose to build it in Svalbard, this tiny remote island off the coast of Norway, for a couple of reasons. One is, obviously, it's really remote, and so we wanted to have this uh, safety backup, this insurance policy, in a remote place because it would avoid a lot of the dangers we see in the real world. Um, but the second was that it's cold. The seeds are frozen at minus 18 Celsius, about the temperature of your kitchen freezer, and they can stay preserved for centuries. So it's like a library of life in the Anthropocene. It is. It's um, the biggest collection of agriculture-related biodiversity in the world. And when you walk down there, you, you have to have a... Um, it, it has to be a humbling experience because you're, you're there amidst these seeds, which um, have made it all the way to the present day. In other words, they've experienced an unbroken, successful chain of evolution to survive this long. 
and your ancestors and mine were involved in their selection and their care, their development. So it really represents the past, the history of agriculture. It represents everything that agriculture, our crops have experienced in the past and had to adapt to. On the other hand, it also represents pretty much everything our agricultural system can be in the future. It's a big repository, if you will, of traits, of diversity, of options. So if it's a library, it's more like the Library of Congress, right? Because it's it's like if every book burns the you know, in the world, the Library of Congress still has a copy. That's right. That's what we aim to do. This is a backup system for world agriculture. I can't look you in the eyes and tell you that I have a solution for climate change or the energy crisis or world hunger or peace and conflict. I can't look you in the eyes and tell you that I have a simple solution for that. But I can look you in the eyes and tell you that we can't solve any of those problems if we don't have crop diversity. Because quite literally, if, we don't, if agriculture doesn't adapt to climate change, neither will we. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is a wonderful gift that Norway and others have given us, but it's not the complete answer. We need to collect the remaining diversity that's out there, we need to put it into good seed banks that can offer those seeds to researchers in the future. And my final thought is that we, of course, by conserving wheat, rice, potatoes, and the other crops, we may quite simply end up saving ourselves. Thank you. Terry Fowler. He's the executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust, which helps run the Svalbard Seed Vault in Norway. You can check out his entire talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show on the Anthropocene this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour, with help from Rachel Faulkner and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Camilo Garcon. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.